Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast from Ergo, Interrupting Criminalization, and Project Nia, where we showcase and explore how we define and create safety in a world without prisons and police. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And we got a special one for you this time. Before we get into what makes this episode different from all other episodes, uh, we're going to bring in our trusty partner in decriminalization, Eva Nagao, is here as always. Meow. I'm here with the cat today. It seems appropriate. Uh, Eva, how are you feeling? I'm doing great, y'all. It's very nice to be here. I'm so excited. Um, all of my friends told me that your intro for me is their favorite part of the episode. So thank you for making me cool again. That feels like a wonderful and somewhat backhanded compliment for friends. We do a lot of other things in the show. <laughs> but I'll take it as a victory of a success story. Small victories, Daniel. Someone likes something. That's fine. Uh, Eva, you're not the only special co-host we have for this very special episode. Um, we want to bring in our special guest host for today's interview. And super homie. Oh, deeply special one more time. (laughs) (laughs) Just especially one of my favorite people. (laughs) Uh, We want to introduce our one ME audience to the one and only Melissa Dupree. What up? Boom Boom Dupree in the house. Uh Hello, Melissa Dupree. She, her queen of the humble park Dupree's here coming at you with my good friends, Damon and Kiss. Apparently, I didn't know your code name was Kiss. It's That's a it's a tricky one. It comes from my last name, which is Kisslinger, but I can't ever be like, call me Kiss. What's up? I'm Kiss. I would hate that <laughs> person. And so you have yeah. to. I have yeah, to that's... wait for this to be like collectively arrived upon before people call me. But it's what everybody calls me. But I can't tell them to. You know? No, no, that's that's creepy. Absolutely. Well, thank you for invoking the name. Let's get deeper into this, <laughs> Melissa. You've been such a joyous and wonderful partner on this episode. But I think first off, before we get into that, Eva, could you just set up who we're talking to today? We are honored to have Zinia Alejandro in the studio with us today. Zinia is a dear comrade and also the program manager of a community-based feminist organization in Louisa, Puerto Rico called Taller Salud. Um, this organization in Louisa is dedicated to improving women's access to healthcare, to reducing violence within the community and encouraging economic growth through education and activism. So this is an organization, you know, that since 1979 has brought a feminist vision to Louisa. Um, they promote women's health as integral in the fight against gender-based violence. Tayer Salud is based on the conviction that when women prosper, their communities are strengthened. Super excited to have Zinni in the studio. I actually saw her recently in California. So excited and grateful for Melissa, who was able to step into that role and um, jump into the studio with us today. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you all so much for having me. First of all, when you asked me to come on board with some of the organizing bodies attached to it, like Project Mia and Interrupting Criminalization, I think I said three or four times, are you sure you want me? Are you absolutely sure? And they they were completely on board with, with this kind of partnership. And I'm really honored to help elevate the mission and the work at the grassroots level in Puerto Rico, considering where we stand in the island with so many lack of resources. And what I really appreciated about Tayer Salud, who who I, I knew of their work before, 
especially in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, I thought it was particularly important to highlight some of the self-actualization that was happening in Puerto Rico and the autonomy that was happening there, despite the lack of resources and support from the federal and local governments, despite some of the corruption that was happening in the pueblos. Um, This is a completely autonomous body that is doing massive restorative justice work on their own within the community for the community and by their community. So I'm really honored to be a voice to elevate this mission. And as a diaspora Rican, a Puerto Rican that was born in Chicago, that's also black, that has so much love for Luis Aldea, which is a free black governing town. I'm continuously in awe of how our people mobilize and how particularly black folks decide to self-initiate and self-govern. So this is a beautiful conversation and I'm so honored to be rounding it out and sharing it with your audiences. And hopefully this is not just going out to Chicago audiences, but this is also highlighting some of the work that's in Puerto Rico for Puerto Ricans as well. All right, y'all. It's time to get you, how, how did that sound? How did, was that, was that, that was, does that embody meta-ness? All right. So not only are we documenting experiments, this work is an experiment itself and how we create abolitionist, anti-colonial media, how we facilitate cross-lingual, cross-cultural dialogue. And so we did not come into this episode knowing that we were going to bring you on, Melissa, but the the idea and the the realization that it would be appropriate to bring you in emerged through process. Yeah, I think we want to just give a brief kind of behind the scenes of how this episode came to be, because it is different from some of the other episodes that we've done in the flow. First of all, the episode has two versions. One is a Spanish language version, and then one is the English language version in translation. So full disclosure, we attempted to do the interview ourselves the first time through a simultaneous interpreter. And because of Wi-Fi issues and just the flow of Zoom It wasn't possible that day, and it kind of brought us back to this thought of, even if this had gone perfectly on the tech end, like what are the limitations of our ability as interviewers to facilitate this conversation? And and then also, how can our limitations as interviewers not necessarily be a limitation of the show? And so we started thinking who would be someone who, one, on the language basis could, could serve as that steward, but two also really like would have a relationship to the content and to the people who we were talking to in the physical space that neither Damon or us could bring. Um, And so multiple attempts and interpretations and recording sessions later, we have this dual episode, one in Spanish and one interpreted into English. And we're hoping that both episodes, you know, find the ears that need to hear them best. So, you know, we'll tease out a little bit of your work, but before folks listen and before folks get engaged with the conversation you have, can you just share a little bit more of like the context of the space of, of Louisa? What makes it unique globally? What makes it unique on the island um, and how that informed not only Tayer Salud's work, but also your conversation with Zinia? Yes, of course. First of all, Luisa Aldea is the whole name of the town. Uh, Luisa is what it's commonly known as. And for those who are as familiar with the relationship of Blackness and the Caribbean, it was one of the first stops within the transatlantic slave trade. And the port in San Juan, it has a fortress where enslaved Africans were held. And Luisa is just a few miles away from that fortress 
uh, from, you know, Biel San Juan. And it is literally 15 minutes away from the airport. One of the first free Black embodied towns of Puerto Rico and in the Caribbean. And it's important to note that it was very exclusive and self-governing and the rest of the island understood that. And so for a very long time, even entering that space, similar to La Perla, like you don't go in unless you are a part of the community, unless you are also Black, unless you are also like related or, you know, part of the family. So for a long time, you know, Luisa was also, for those reasons, very much disenfranchised and not invested in as part of multiple other towns in Puerto Rico. And so the idea of their own autonomy, the idea of them self-governing is not new by any means. Generations had to figure out how to do mutual aid, what we know as mutual aid, by just culturally being Puerto Rican, right? is like, we say that in the interview, if there's one pork chop on that street, everybody's eating from that one pork chop. And that's part of the culture. That's part of the heart of being Puerto Rican. But that's also very much part of being Black in Puerto Rico is knowing that you will likely be on your own to take care of your own problems, to resolve your own issues, and to work on de-escalation and harm without the interventions of either police, politicians, or outside help. For that reason, what Tayer Salud is doing, how they're creating models and systems within their own community, and then transferring that to other communities and going outside of themselves to say, hey, this is the process that we use. It's also because they've been doing that work since their establishment of that town. It's not just new be in light of the, uh, the oppression of women, the lack of resources, the lack of reproductive health and knowledge, the lack of education. It's an entire comprehensive divestment in all of those things that have allowed Louisa to create systems within their own communities that help address some of these disparities. Mm. So I think that gives some really good context on the space. What did it feel like to facilitate this conversation? Were you nervous? What felt great about it? What was the experience of that coming out of it? Yeah, man, you know, I'm just a big, fierce fan of feminism. And in my lineage... <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> just, just a big fan. <laughs> just, you know, I'm just a big fan of like Black-led feminist movements. And um, my family has come from many Black feminist educators from Luisa, from Puerto Rico, from Arecibo. And so this felt very familiar and, and being in the room with Zinia and the way that she was really grappling the methodology behind it, right? We're always asking like, what's the method? You know, I know we're really into like the scientific method of it. You know, how do you prototype something? You know, we, we really dove into process and that was the most interesting part of it. How do you go about it? And she was like, we just talk. The dialogue is to actually come to a consensus as a community, ask them what is going on, what are the main problems, what are the ways in which we can resolve it, what are the obstacles and barriers getting you from what you need, and how can we bridge those gaps, and also at the same time, how do we heal the violence that has occurred because of those gaps and because of those disparities and because of the harm that could essentially come from there. So never assuming that we know 
we have to open dialogue. And Zinnia was so masterful in saying, we may be focused on reproductive justice, but this particular town has a huge problem with their young male community causing harm or really not understanding how to engage and protect the young women and the older women in their community. So like that has to be prioritized and resolved first. So the way that they shift the narrative, the way that they shift the ways in which they're trying to address one issue by solving another, that is just comprehensive care. And it takes so much energy and so much work. And I think that that's part of the root of that feminist approach is that to address one thing, especially when it comes to centering women, you have to address all of the other communities, which I think is beautiful because then it actually does center women in that it's just so impassioned. And at the same time, you could hear the exhaustion in her Mm -hmm. voice and even just asking like, how are you supported? How are you funded? I want so much for Zinnia to have all of the self-care and her team to have all of the self-care because what they're doing is really taking on the emotional trauma of what it means to be in an island that has literally been forgotten and treated as third-class citizens byproduct of colonialization. I'm really praying for the advocacy and I'm really hoping that this work that we're doing in highlighting the mission help spread some of the awareness and and get them some other resources that can really help lift the burden of the labor. It's just, you know, again, it's all Black women and they're doing the labor of liberating other Black women. All right, listeners, we're talking to you. That means go to tallersalud.com. In the top right corner, it says Dona Oi. You can donate there. Mira, Dona Oi. And find out all about their work. I know that was a super long intro. We wanted to give you the context to set up this conversation. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. You came here for the long-form life. You're getting that long-form life. You know what? It is what it is. With that said, let's hop into the lab with Melissa Dupre and Zinia Alejandro. Here we are with Dayed Salud. First of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Melissa Dupre of the Humble Park Dupre's. I'm currently on land occupied by First Nations, the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and Potawatomi, and their native tribes that still occupy this land. Xenia, please introduce yourself and talk about the organization, Dayed Salud. Hello, my name is Zenia Alejandro. Talking about myself, Generally, I don't enjoy very much. But yes, speaking about Taller Salud, I do. And for me, to talk about Taller Salud is to talk about Zenia. We have a very beautiful understanding. Recently, I emailed my supervisor because I was off on sick leave because various things had happened to me. But even while sick, I had been doing some work. And my supervisor said to me, Zenia, don't take all these days on sick leave. Give me the hours that you worked and take the others as sick leave. And my answer to that was something like this. Working with Taller Salud for me is an apostleship. Working for Taller Salud personally is not work. It's the building of a country. So if I speak of Taller Salud, I speak of country building. We are a feminist community-based organization where there are three very important branches that work with the community. Community and leadership women in health, and peace and development. Community and leadership empowers women. 
the leaders of the community, so that they can identify their obstacles and problems and be able to resolve them collectively. Women in Health works directly with the health of women. In fact, we have a slogan that says, the health of the community begins with the health of women. So for us, it's very important to work with women. In fact, that's how Taller Salud began in 1979 when it was founded, working with women and the sexual and reproductive health of women. Since then, we haven't stopped working with women. Thirdly, the program that I direct is Peace and Development. And that program that I direct was born in 2011 out of the need of the women who work with Taller Salud and who also wanted to work to stop violence in the town. The women asked Taller Salud to start looking at how women could work on the issue of community violence. Now, in 2011, the program began, but in 2009, the dialogues had already started with the women and the leadership of Laisa. A very beautiful thing that Taller Salud has is that they have their ear to the ground. They listen to the community. I believe that's the success of Taller Salud. I know that Taller Salud is very successful, modesty aside, not because we impose ourselves, but because we listen to the community. What that means is that we have a very grounded relationship with our people and our people trust us. We make progress because there is a unity of thought within the community and with us at Taller Salud. Thank you for that information on the organization. And if we could go back a beat, can you please define for me your role and just repeat your name and pronouns and explain what are other people's roles in the organization and how you went about dividing those roles and responsibilities? My name is Zenia Alejandro, as I said earlier. My pronouns are she, her. At Taller Salud, we have an analyst group and we have a communications team, which are small departments that help us flourish within the community and outside of it. We have the Women and Health Program directed by Lourdes Inoa. And within Women and Health, you can find the promoters of health. You will find your Peace Counts, which is a program that works directly with gender-based violence. You will find the Afro-Caribbean group, which is a very fascinating group of Afro-Caribbean women. And we also have a psychological component that works directly with women when there is a situation of violence. Those are the areas that Lourdes works on, specifically under women and health. Jenny de Jesus is the person in charge of working with the community and leadership program. She has a program where they develop the community in different facets of agriculture. They also have a seedling capital project that contributes to people who want to begin their small businesses so that they can produce. They can plan and format those new business projects. Beyond that, they have a strong group of organizers within the community, which are the community leaders, where they identify the situations of violence and need within the community to be able to work with them. That's Jenny. Then there's me, Zenia, and I work with Peace and Development Program. Peace and Development works directly with social violence. The principal objective of peace and development is to minimize the violent deaths within the township of Louisa. That is our work, that there are no deaths within the town. Our town at the moment has 25,000 inhabitants. When I began in 2011, 
it had 30,000 inhabitants. But there were deaths every week. Every week there were deaths. There were a lot of deaths. In 2011, that year closed with 42 deaths within Louisa. We're talking about in that time, 42 people have died. In 2011, that year ended with 42 deaths, which is a number that is far too high for the number of inhabitants that we had in Louisa that year. Previously, there had been 46 and 49 deaths in 2009 and 2010. It was very worrying what was happening in Louisa. Therefore, the community, specifically the women of the town, started speaking with Tayel Salou because it was the men, their husbands and their children and their brothers who were dying in the streets. So we started working with an evidence-based violence prevention model from Chicago. We started looking at what models could work with the violence. We found that model in the university. We started to creolize it to see how we can adapt it and adopt it to the specific needs of our people. Talking about the organizations that are taking that empowerment feminist approach, how has the movement changed or how has the reaction changed from one feminist organization making the approach to the community? Have you received other reactions? Has the mission changed? It was a growing process, as much for the organization as for the community. It was not normal for a feminist organization to work with men. That fact forced the Taller Salud vision to expand and grow. We were able to say that beyond the health of a people beginning with the health of the women, there was also another component that went hand in hand with that, which is the reality that men were dying. That, for us, was a very important moment. Our perspective of what a feminist was from 1979 had changed completely. So slowly, we began integrating men in the work and not only opening paths within the organization, but also within the community. I imagine the history of oppression of women's health in Puerto Rico has greatly impacted the organization's mission. With focus on women's health, starting with the forced sterilization of women in Puerto Rico in that time and the history of Luisa, what should we understand about Luisa and its history to comprehend the relationship between the community and Tayer Salud as a response to racial and feminine oppression? Why is it important that it exists? We, as you very well know, we are a Black town of Black people. I believe there's very few towns in Puerto Rico that can determine themselves as completely Black as Luisa does. At Luisa, we may have Guayamaya, perhaps Nagabu. We have several towns of the eastern area, and historically, many Black people settled these lands, not because they wanted to be here, but because they were brought here forcibly enslaved. As time passes, we became engaged within this land. If I speak to you about what our geography is here in our town, it's like this. For you to reach my town from the three sides that we can leave, there is only a single road. Yes, there's only one entrance and exit arriving at the airport. We're connected to Puerto Rico by bridges, and that's number one. Our territory isolates us from the rest of Puerto Rico, and that in and of itself is a disadvantage. Additionally, when they began experimenting with pills and sterilizations in Luisa, we were a focus point. I can speak to that from the experience of my mother. 
My mother has six children. The reality was that she started to take these birth control pills without knowing well what it was she was taking or the effect that it would cause. I want you to know that not only did this happen to my mother, it happened to several women in Luisa. Taking care of your sexual health was something that the founding members of Taller Salud saw as very important and necessary to work with, and that they started to do it when Hurricane Hugo happened. When that hurricane happened, they moved to Luisa to start working with us. It was people who they did not work with before. They were not employees of a corporation. It was more a collective that would meet, and they would visit the homes of women. That's where they taught them how to see all of their body parts. They taught them how to have contact with, because normally they don't show us how to have contact with our vulva, with our bodies, so that they could observe themselves through a mirror. This was never done before. The history is interesting because it wasn't done with the computer. It wasn't done with a diagram. It was done in the middle of the town. This is the mirror. These are the parts we're going to look at. And this is the clitoris. A sexual education began. How women had to take care of themselves and the things they had to question. The things they had to accept. And the things they could not accept. Of course, all of this took place in very profound dialogue with the women of Luisa. That work that was done was a giant thing for me. Titanic. I really appreciate it within my soul. Because from that moment, Luisa women were able to make decisions about their bodies and take care of their bodies in a different way. I remember when, as a child, my mother taught us how to look at ourselves with a mirror for the first time. She taught us how to do it with a mirror because that's how they taught her to do it. That was not something she came up with. It was taught to her, and then she taught it to us. I tell this to you as an antidote so that you know the importance of education and to be able to get to a community in time and to be able to feel as if we are a part of the tribe. It was part of a historical process. I was so fortunate that the founding members of Taller Salud saw a need in Luisa and that they settled here. I think that Luisa has been a town that has been very intelligent in the way that it has worked with several areas, in different areas. When we work with women in the way that we're working, other towns don't even get close to these kinds of conversations with women. I think that makes us a unique space within Puerto Rico. I'm so happy to know that the founders took on the great responsibility to educate and how beautiful it was to use a mirror and not to be some sweeping general information as a one-size-fits-all approach to sex education. It's your own relationship with your body. It's your reflection of your own body. Exactly. Wow. I have goosebumps. My abuela didn't even take a mirror down there. I take her to the doctor where she still has all of these questions. And I know she comes from a time where women didn't talk about their body. I know that patriarchy is strong and it's cultural. I have an aunt, Emma Dupre de Sterling. My last name is Dupre. She's my great aunt, actually. And how she was an educator and purveyor of Puerto Rican culture. I see that women in Loisa are taking on that role fiercely and focused on women's rights. I'm so happy and super proud of this work and you all. 
Speaking on some of the damage that occurs after a hurricane, I know even right now certain areas are currently without light or water or basic resources. How are you working with those towns and communities that are still missing their basic needs for health and survival? We do several things, and the expert in this subject is Jenny. I'm speaking from what I see and what I've contributed. One of the things that we do here is we receive any kind of donation or material that could help the community. We do walks, and we take the products directly to the community. If we get food donations, we're going to take the food to the community. Calling and walking, we take the groceries directly to the community. We have already identified people that are bedridden. We have already done a family census to see the number of families and to see what they need. Right after the hurricane, actually, we had the opportunity to purchase mattresses and beds and to be able to hand those out because we did not have beds. We did not have parts to give to the people. All of the teams came together in a monumental effort to put the tarps on the houses. There's something that's very important to us, Melissa. We work moving ourselves so that people who make decisions are transparent. We work within the law. When we see that there's a fund that's coming that belongs to the people. It belongs to the people. It belongs to the people. Funds must be redistributed. Exactly. We need to distribute these funds. That's what we're trying to do. We write letters, we get signatures, not only so that Luisa can benefit, but so that all Puerto Rico can benefit. Because after Hurricane Maria, it was very evident that the poverty was already here. What Maria did was uncover it so that everybody could see it. To us, it's very important to be able to tell the people who take positions and that receive funds that it's very important that you distribute this. We have really focused on this on top of working with the specific needs of each family to be able to collaborate with every family to obtain refrigerators, stoves. That was, of course, after Hurricane Maria. When we started working with women and the founders of Taller Salud started working, that was also after Hurricane Hugo in 1989. This community movement has always been real. It has always been very present. It's called mutual aid, but I say that's deeply Puerto Rican. How to reach out to the community and share what you have. If we have one single pork chop, that's the pork chop we share among (laughs) us. But since Hurricane Hugo, they started that movement. Puerto Ricans know how they do community outreach. Yes, we give to each other. We're not selfish people. We're people who, if we have only one pork chop, we split it up amongst everyone. There's no way that a person who is next to us goes without. Because if they have needs, that means I have needs. It's either for everyone or it's for nobody. That's how we are. Shifting a bit to a heavier subject, I would love to discuss the physical and sexual violence targeted to women. We know that there are laws and policies in place that don't have enough protection towards women, and violence is climbing. As it is, when a woman is violated, police aren't actually testing the rape kits. They sit in labs. Can you talk to us a little bit about that violence? Have you noticed a flux in attacks towards women and trans women? Earlier, we spoke about how we distribute amongst the community within the community. 
and how we work with the needs of our people. We also work with the entire country through the laws. The person that's very good at this subject in particular, her name is Lourdes Inoa. Answering your questions directly, the violence against women has grown a lot. And it grew so much that we were able to get the governor to declare a state of emergency for Puerto Rico in terms of the violent deaths and also gender-based violence and abuse. I don't know if it's been a part of the pandemic, but it's like we have retreated 10 years back in terms of gender-based violence. The cycle of violence, women already recognized it. There is a roadblock, and it is with people who do not know the protocols to follow. You said precisely how things go with the police and gender violence. People make their reports, but there's nobody who follows up. Or even worse, the police victimize them, or they ask question after question, or they move them. It happens with the judges. It happens with the prosecutors. When they go before the judges, what judges decide can sometimes put women in danger. All of this makes the situation even worse. And adding violence, physical and then systemic violence. And systemic. The reality is, is that women already know how and what domestic violence is. In the old times, people did not know how to recognize domestic violence. But after a campaign of many years and much effort, women finally know how to identify gender-based violence. Now we need to get people who work in judicial areas to support women and to avoid deaths. Because if not, we will continue to have a lot of deaths in Puerto Rico. This weekend, there was a death. Truly, it's a very tough issue. Women are waking up, but the system continues to be the same. Of course, we're educating. Taller Salud is going to the courts, giving workshops at the courts. We go to the television networks And we tell the system that they need to put themselves in the place of these women because oftentimes they do not recognize the danger that women are facing. And that sometimes is the enemy within our own home. For us, it's very important that at the smallest suspicion that they protect women. It excites me a lot that you're talking about the recognition of violence and the recognition of violence towards women in their situation. It's very hard for them to even identify that they're in danger because by law, it's passed on to the women that it's their own responsibility. But it's also in part how the community sees this violence and intervenes. For you, have you noticed that the community is also recognizing state violence, domestic violence, and also systemic violence? Have you noticed that people are finally waking up to systemic violence? How have you been keeping that conversation going? It's clear. Unfortunately, we've had violent deaths of women. We've seen how people have risen up to the demand from judges and to the demand that there's justice. If they had taken the call in time, that's how they say it. We can see that awakening amongst the people who are making these demands. Demands from a community that can make its own decisions. There's the women that know how to identify, but there's also the community who says, the women already identify it, but we need you to respond. That community response exists. It's very real. Every time we see it with greater numbers of people, it's before the courts. 
there's a good response from the community. Mm-hmm. What resources does Taller Salud give to empower people to respond to this violence? We have a program that for us is very interesting, which is Your Peace Counts. Your Peace Counts is a pioneering program for me because it's able to work with domestic violence within churches. What's happening is we see churches and we think that a faith-based community is a place where there is no domestic violence. So what did Your Peace Counts do? What it did was that it started infiltrating or it started moving within the churches. And to be able to call pastors and ministers to workshop, to provoke pastors and ministers to create protocols that could help in the case of a woman deciding that she was being abused and that she needed to leave that cycle. For us, Taller Salud is providing many tools, tools that I know are not being provided in many other places, to create a different perspective within communities, to put different glasses on, where the patriarchy should not be a dominant figure and that women can actually be attended to as people, as human beings that need to be free, that need to be themselves. It's over. That's it. So specifically about abortion policies. Now, I imagine it's getting harder to talk about that, especially today. But it is super important that a woman is autonomous of her own body and that she also has the support of her community, her church, her family, and also the doctors. Exactly. We're going down a path that nobody goes through. We're going at a comfortable pace, a pace of insistence and of presence of not looking at women as objects or people that need decisions made for them, but looking at women with all of their authority and autonomy over their bodies and their decisions. I think that in some way, we continue to educate. This is education. Something that's very important is to be able to know and understand that when you live thinking that things are a certain way and you see no difference, you can be in a situation of violence and not see it thinking that it is true love. When you find people who begin to tell you what love is, that love is respect. That love is treating you with dignity. You as a person can begin to evaluate if you're truly in a relationship of respect and dignity, or if you're not. It's marvelous to be able to put those new lenses on women. From there, you can make decisions. The path that we're treading is a very difficult one, but very revealing as well. It's a revealing path for women and also for the community. I'm very happy and very proud to belong to Taller Salud in that sense, because it's liberation, it's freedom. It's freedom of thought. It's freedom of decision, not only for women, but for an entire community. And you're changing the definition of what it is to be healthy completely, Totally. And that movement is part of the education component. How has Tayyip Salud's methodology evolved? How do you go about the education component? Do you have dialogues and workshops? How have you come to settle on your practice? Do you have internal workshops? What is your process in making a workshop with the community? Our process is listening to the community. We see the situation and the problems And we begin to put together the team so that we can have these discussions amongst ourselves. How to respond to these needs. From there, we build the workshops and what we need. For example, if I speak to you about what the peace agreement is, 
it comes from a, a need we saw. One of the times, um, one of the children, I'm not talking about the women now. I'm talking about the program that I direct. A 12-year-old child started bothering another woman's child. He grabbed a scissor because that's how things get resolved in Louisa. That got to us. When that got to us, we started thinking. If that child of 12 years old believes that that's how things are resolved in Louisa, it's not because he wants to say that, but it's because he has seen it. That's how things get resolved in Louisa. We came to an agreement and we began an educational campaign that said that problems would be resolved speaking or through dialogue. We began communication workshops. In those communication workshops, we were able to work out a campaign where there were sweatshirts of that and there were stickers of that. That has remained. Now we speak to communities and communities remind us of this. Problems get resolved by speaking or talking. The preparation that we go through to design a workshop and to build it for our people, it all begins with a conversation. There is no way for our people to be assertive if we do not observe the community, if we're not looking to see how times are, because we cannot waste any moment of what's happening in the streets of our town, be it with women, be it with the community, be it with violence. We need to have our ear to the ground. That means to observe this small part of Puerto Rico, which is Luisa. It is, um, how do you say, a taste of what's happening in all of the towns of Puerto Rico. It is an experiment. It is a social experiment, too. If it happens in this town, here we keep it, and here we try to build the dialogue in response to the crime, right? We have to look for where the roots are, where the crime comes from. There is not one solution to everything. No, there is not one solution. Everyone has their own way and their own manners of asserting themselves in community. Luisa is a view of what happens in all of Puerto Rico. When we say that this is happening here with the women of Luisa, if this is happening here with the communities of Luisa, if this is happening here with the youth of Luisa, then this is also happening in the other towns and cities of Puerto Rico. When we work to pass laws and with the people who make decisions, not only are we benefiting our people in our town, we're benefiting all of Puerto Rico. We're benefiting all of our people who suffer because within this pocket that we call Luisa, there is poverty. But in every town, there is also poverty. In this small pocket where people have been marginalized, in other towns, people have been marginalized. This has been marvelous in a sense that we can be an entity that can say to the people who make decisions, let's create justice for our people. How powerful your messages are. Thank you so much for capturing these experiences. This is so efficient. You are noting the change and you are doing it yourselves. If you have 10 minutes left, I will ask my last few questions. Thank you for your time. I want to respect it. I'm interested in the dialogues that have developed out of Louisa specifically. You're saying that certain issues that are happening here must be happening in other towns and across the island. I also understand that there is colorism and laws that support the oppression of Black people specifically. 
do you feel the same workshops that derive from Larusa can be easily transferred to other communities? Do you feel that they target the same issues? Or do those issues not exist outside of Loisa? I have to tell you that, yes, there are differences that exist. Every town has its own idiosyncrasies. Every town has its own culture. What doesn't change is that we are human beings. What doesn't change is the lack of opportunity. We already had an experience as a people and as a town and as Taller Salud. And that experience, we can take it to other cities. It'll be simple for us to be able to observe in what ways we can get to the roots of every problem. Because we worked with the root of the problem in Luisa. Working with the root of this problem, we have an experience that's going to help us work with other towns. Of course, we're going to adopt and adapt to what they know. And sometimes we can even say one word that for us means one thing and to someone else means something different entirely. The 10-cent coin, I call it Levita, and in Luisa they say Vellita. But when I go to another place, for other people to understand, I say Vellón. Give me a Vellón de 10. Give me a 10-cent coin. What I'm saying is that Taller Salud is going to be translating its experience in such a way that other people can look on and they can translate that experience to a new change of thought to benefit each person or town. Yes, that interpretation is yours because it comes from your experience. And it's also your dialogue, your language, that's yours. And it's specific to Loisa. I think it is important. Yes, that's very important. But that's where we're going. We're going with what we know. When we observe another place, we're going to translate what we know so that they can understand the experience that we already have. Wow, wow, wow. How strong, how powerful. I know that at the end of the day, it's the roots. And in the United States, most of the time, it's whiteness. Most of the time, it's white people in power, right? The laws are built to benefit them, totally. And also, I think it's part of their method of colonialism. They have come to this island. And Tayel Salud, yes, it fights colonialism because it's fighting for access to health resources. And I think I've already talked about it, but almost everything. But how do you fund Tayel and how does the government in Puerto Rico support Tayel Salud? The government supports Tayel Salud. Well, I could say let's go one by one. <laughs> If we speak about the municipality of Luisa, I can tell you that the mayor of Luisa supports Taller Salud, and together we have created a front against the government of Puerto Rico. The aid of the government can barely be seen. It's kind of there, but I don't believe that it's accessible. Taller Salud as an entity, what we do is precisely that, to empower community leaders, even the youth that we work with. I tell them that you have your rights And you can claim your rights and demand your rights, but that it should not be like that. We should not have to claim what is ours by right. We have to struggle for our rights, to fight for our hospitals, to have places for recreation, because sometimes we have nothing to do in Luisa. We have to fight so that the basketball courts are ready and well-maintained. We have to fight so that things happen. And I believe that that should not be. It's a waste of energy. If we're going to waste energy or spend energy, it should be for living, for being happy, 
to run and have fun with the fact that I'm running so that my energy is not to think whether or not I have a safe roof over my head. That's a waste of my energy. I think we're losing a lot of energy and we're getting tired out. There's things that belong to us as a people and as a town, and the money is there. We continue to do this work. We continue to open up paths. But it should not be that tough because it's something that is ours. Yes, it is. And Puerto Rico has everything but the support. Well, to the last question, and again, thank you for your time, but this is the last one. What are the tools, protocols, and methods that you need to start a process, a space like Tayyad Salud? What would you need? Number one, if you want to have a Tayyad Salud, you have to see women not as objects, but as people. Human beings that have the potential to make their own decisions and with the potential to transform their surroundings. As long as that human being is healthy, she will be able to build a town, and a town is built. I would say to look at women with the dignity that they deserve, to give them the space to be themselves, to have their ears to the ground. There is no way to be assertive if we do not observe the needs of the community. If we do not listen to the needs of the community, when those two things are covered, I'm not saying that they need to have money. I'm saying make plans. Because as long as there's a plan, there is an objective and there's a goal that is sought after. And if that is reached, because you go on looking for the tools that are necessary. If you need money, then you look for money. If you need to speak to someone, you speak to someone. If you need to ask for a place for a meeting, then you ask for a place to host a meeting. But the important thing is to have a plan and to follow it. The other thing is that you can always communicate with us because we're experts and we can help you. Hire me. Hire me. Thank you for your time in explaining this path and bringing dignity to women. The community dialogue is important and the community is also finding dignity. Even through the technical difficulties, we were able to have a great conversation. And hopefully, God willing, I'll be able to be in Puerto Rico and meet you in person sometime in June or July and see firsthand Dayed Salud events. I also play Bomba and have seen you do events with Bomba. And it just makes so much sense that it underscores the movement as a music of fury and resistance. As feminists, you are making sure that women have tampons and medical access. This is all really important resistance work. Since I didn't speak too much about my own program, I wanted to say one thing. In 2011, we closed off with 42 deaths. But now in 2022, we've only had two deaths. And to us, that reduction has been constant. Of course, we are in the month of May and there's still time to go. But I want you to know that we've worked continually with youth to change their thoughts so that even when they had guns, they decided not to use them. To me, it's very important, the work that we're doing, the community-based work where we're saying exchange vengeance for forgiveness. That's not easy to work with, but that is my expertise. That's something that I wanted to mention, that we began with 42 deaths in a year, but we've had a 89% reduction of deaths. That is restorative justice. That's what we're doing. 
with restorative justice. People know very little about it. And I want you to know that we give second and third chances to the men and the youth that carry arms and who have unfortunately killed or who've been looking to kill. We've been working continuously to offer them the opportunity that nobody has been able to offer them. You all are so beautiful and doing incredible work. And thank you for commenting on that because that was another question that I wanted to ask. How are the youth or young men engaged within this work? That is a prime example of how restorative justice could work and what your impact is. We need to change vengeance to be able to forgive. And that's not easy. That's the work of the soul and of the spirit. But of course, we're with them day to day, speaking not of what they've lost, but of what they can win if they begin to make different choices. We've won a lot, but of course, other things we have lost. But we have one youth that wants to live. When we began working, would work with a youth that said that nothing mattered because they had been born to die and their life expectancy was 20 to 25 years old. Now we're listening to that same youth say, I want to study. I want to work. I want to be with my family. We've seen that change in thought, which has not been easy. We've been working with them for over a decade now, but we've gone to battle and have seen the roots of so much sacrifice. Well, that is the pride you have. When someone is proud of who they are and where they come from within their roots and their culture, it's a different kind of light. It's a different kind of pride. And that's everyone's responsibility. So is there anything else you'd like to share or would like people to know? It's not just for folks in the U.S., but for folks all over the island who also might not be aware of your work and would like to reach you. Where can we find you? How can we follow you? You can find us at www.tallersalud.com, T-A-L-L-E-R-S-A-L-U-D.com. You can also call us at 421-2775. And we also have a special line for the peace agreement that I'm going to say now, which is 787-698-1120. With Taller Salud, directly at 876-4430. Thank you. It's so important to have this information. I know that we travel a lot as organizers and activists to learn about how Black communities all over the world operate and self-govern. It's Black feminism at the root level. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. You are a visionary and miracle. Lovely to finally meet you. I've been preparing this interview for some time now. You may also know my sister, Sian Dupre, who came to work with you uh, and Powerful Puerto Rico. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. So coming out of the lab, let's get into this peer review. We got the team back with us. We got Melissa back. Kudos on your work. (laughs) And we, of course, have the home team here. We got Eva back with us. Eva, you want to start us off? What are some of the things that are sitting with you or that you're taking from that conversation as we we jump into our peer review? Hoping I don't offend all my peers. You know, I... 
I alluded to this in the intro a little bit, but I, I want to circle back to say, we talked a little bit about the process of how this interview came about, about the experiment that is 1 million experiments, bringing people into our lab um, to, you know, produce something together and to, oh my God, I'm going to have to try to make the meta noise, but to zoom it out <laughs> once again, maybe Damon will do it for me. There you go. <laughs> it's, you know, our work with Tire Salute is, at this point, longstanding, it's people we've partnered, um, you know, in conversations and strategy and movement building for some time now. And in 2020, you know, one, one million experiments really got off the ground. This idea that we were going to look around, we we're going to talk to our peers, we we're going to bring people into the lab to say, you know, hey, you all are calling for quote unquote alternatives. You are calling for people to come up with solutions for your communities. You are calling for people to build safety where you are. Well, look around. People have been doing that for a long time. You've been doing that for a long time. We've been doing that for a long time. And Louisa has been doing that for a long time in a slightly different way. It's important to make those connections across to the island of Puerto Rico. And it's also important to note that making those connections has not been easy for us or for Taller Salud. I'll just be real. The amount of funding it takes to make a multilingual language justice, you know, accessible space for movement builders when we are moving a very multilingual movement, you know, has been extremely hard. We've stepped into the lab six more times on this episode than we have on any other episode. And it is because we had to, absolutely. Like it is so important that we did that. I hope that we have, you know, made this experiment, launched this experiment so that we can continue to do that, to bring in international voices, to make those connections. But I mean, for real, it is not easy. And, you know, there's a lot of systems and factors that don't make it easy, but I, I really hope people tuned in and got here to what I'm saying right now, because this was a really, really valuable episode for that point, not just because of the wealth of knowledge and experience that Zinnia brings to the table, but for just to show how important it is to really make those connections and make that reach when you can. Eva, just that jumping off point actually brings me to a question or want to like accountably make some space to like ground in vision or in possibility. And Melissa, I'll throw this to you. Um, as somebody who is feels limited by being monolingual, you know, in the, the past, especially two years, but, you know, being in movement in general has like pushed me more towards language accessibility. Uh, but I want to like become more radical in that mission or in that mandate or in creating that solidarity. And so like what feels more possible once we have language solidarity, right? And once we're able to maneuver through language barrier as an obstacle? That's a great question. And in my personal opinion, I believe service is universal. It's a universal language. That's why it's a love language, right? Mm -hmm. And I do believe white missionaries don't ever stop <laughs> going into other countries. <laughs> like, it has yeah, it, never... It didn't stop them. <laughs> yeah, it never stops a missionary. The old, like, let me take a step like, back. That was, yeah, that, they that kept stepping forward. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the difference is the service, right? Like they're there for their own savior complex and to say that they did the thing and to also prescribe what they think that third world country is. And that's highly colonial. That is highly racist. You know, it's just a byproduct of white supremacy to try to develop a country so that way it could be attractive for their development. Right. So in other approaches, I think service really goes to 
yes, language is necessary, but I think we've all been in a position where we just put our bodies there and somebody will tell us what they need and how to use the body, right? And I think that's so much of our allyship is really about putting our bodies in those spaces because somebody will tell you what to do. And if you're able-bodied to help, and that that is a huge resource, there's so many ways to have your own abilities meet someone else's need for service. So for me, I don't think language is always a barrier. I think the communication is to allow them to communicate to you in some way or another how you can be of help. We're doing a little documentary project with some of our comrades who have been involved in defund the police work over the past couple of years. And I can hear the Spanish in my head, though I'm be too embarrassed to try right now, though I promise to practice. But Zinia says again and again and again, I just have this refrain that, you know, if there's one thing Tayer Salud does, it is listen to the voices of the community and respect the community. Yeah, but what what happens when the language, like there's a cross language and I'm like your body, like yeah. offer yeah. your body. The body speaks and listens. Yes. Yeah. Boom, mm. boom, 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 <laughs> boom, boom. What else, uh, what else jumped out, y'all? I want to connect the amazing trajectory of the work to the other experiments we've talked to. So I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the, the Trans Travel Fund and I'm thinking of, of Mask, Mothers Against Senseless Killings. And what's resonating for me is this is the longest standing organization or entity we've talked to. Every other one is also emerging within the last decade or so, right? And so the fact that this started in 1979, it began simply, you know, from how the, the story was told of workshops around health, around the body, around sex education, um, this kind of like grassroots for, you know, women and femme bodies. And so for that to be the, the starting seed or the starting focus, and now we're talking, you know, 40 or so years later, not only addressing now domestic violence and violence against women's bodies, but for the whole region to see an 89% drop in murder and killing, you know, from this seed of here's a mirror and here's how you inspect yourself because there is no institutions that we can trust to support us, right? So then I think about all of the experiments we've talked to, and I can imagine there's folks who are maybe coming new to this abolition work that like wanted to be big, fast, and sexy of like, what is the thing so that tomorrow I can say we don't need cops? And if we actually like take a step back and give us that like that generational timeline and see that coordinating mutual aid of Uber rides or sitting out on the weekends in lawn chairs or just having a, a phone line that's available a couple of hours on the weekend as a start can then grow if we're not just beholden to the kind of like fast paced capital cycles of funding. Um, if we are able to give a lifetime to the work, it can grow to so many possibilities. So the fact that an explicitly women and femme based feminist organization is now practicing. How do we talk to the young men about healing, about restorative justice, about you know this this notion of forgiveness over vengeance, and you know not being political but grounding in this this soul spiritual space? I'm just really moved in receiving what time as a tool and as an axis of the work can provide, and how these things can exponentially grow. And it is always from the marginalized spaces that we need to center that we can like get those examples the most clearly. I just want to pick on what you said, Damon. It's these conversations. Like think of the through thread of the episodes we've had till now. And the highlight here is these starting with conversations. 
and love. It's starting from love and it really has love at the root of it. Like I, I love what they said with vengeance. Cause like, it's just such a, <laughs> it's such a machista theme too, right? Like you can't forget that there's cultural patriarchy embedded within our people. And so like even dismantling and deconstructing that to come from a place of love is combating patriarchy. When she was talking about the, holding up the mirror and the self-inspection, oh, it just blew me away the kind of intergenerational healing that's happening in the island stemming from women being experimented on for birth control and the forced sterilization that happened. This was not over a century ago. It was in the 20th century. Like, if I'm not incorrect, like Motown existed. Yes. <laughs> it was during <laughs> Motown when <laughs> everybody was trying to be sexy. <laughs> like, yeah, big, fast, and sexy. Sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. So the the way that they're approaching this is also, you know, about love, love for yourself, love for your community and and really identifying that women are a divine source and trying to flip that on its head in a male patriarchal machista culture and society is incredible work. We at least have the soft, the soft males here. Like I've, I've got plenty of soft brothers and, and, and soft whites. Like I know so many Latinas that marry white just to get away from this shit. You know, like, well, That's a plot twist. <laughs> just a frosted light bulb out here. A soft white, you know. <laughs> Them soft whites. Man. So when we talk about abolition, right? Like, we have to do the both and of that local work being connected to an analysis of the state. And so I think, you know, the island of Puerto Rico is so uniquely placed for us to have a state analysis. There is this perverse inside outside relationship with colonialism and colonization that informs everything about the politics of the, of the island. And so then coming back to the local work of TS you see that? I, I, oh, I, I we already, we're, on yes. a, we're on an acronym. I, I, <laughs> the limits of my tongue. Already. You know? <laughs> um, so, that, you know, if we get back to the local work of TS being rooted in this, not being any misconceived notions or illusions of trusting the state or like the governor or especially the U.S. federal government having our interest having our lives being centered or being cared for in any type of way. Um, you know, I want to like kind of pull out some of that colonial complexity. You know, this gets into some of the conversation of border, statehood, all of that, and, and how this local mutual aid ethic actually creates the capacity to build a new thing, which I think is different than us in the 48 states. I think we know here that we need some new shit. I don't think we have been as practiced over this last century or so in always having to build the things that we need. And to add a, a little sprinkle on top of this, please, this idea of a like somewhat explicitly named autonomous region mm -hmm. defined by and for black people on the island, like there are racially isolated and segregated <laughs> areas in the United States that I don't think we define, understand, or look to to operate as autonomous. There are regions that do operate autonomously that we don't define that way. And Welcome so what, to the hood. Right. <laughs> it's just called the hood here. Right. So what power comes from, rather than saying this is a segregated neighborhood, comes from saying this is an autonomous neighborhood. This is an area where we define our own systems because that is what's happening. That might be how people within it 
already are identifying it, but that's never the the kind of framework that the that the people outside of that zone are pushed to identify it as. It's always, oh, look at how distant they are from power, not, oh, look, they have their own structures of power. <laughs> Absolutely. And that that has been the observation for a lot of people on the island, but the, the difference is the self-governance and it's the, the, the mobilization and the kind of organizing body, but it, that has always been led by women and primarily older women who, who was doing food first. It was always about eating first. Um, I, I recall, and I'll call back to my ancestor and legacy, Emma Dupre de Sterling, who created the receta of Caldo Santo, where she put all of these fish into a soup with coconut milk and roots and made a big pot of it. And that's Sancocho. Sancocho could feed everybody. And she would feed all the children, but she would first ask them to spell their name, to count to 20, to do their letters. Then they gave her a bowl. And if you couldn't do that, she'd sit with you until you did. That That is one thing is like the difference is the governing body, who in the hood that we know is creating those spaces. And again, it's not visible, right? We're not highlighting that. It's unseen heroes. It's completely like within the community. We don't know what's happening in the hood because we've just literally created a veil. It's out of sight, out of mind. It's disenfranchised. It's divested. We don't go in there. We don't know what they're doing. They don't know. They, you know, we leave them to their own devices. And I think that part of Dayed Salud's work It's so integral to the conversation of self-autonomy and self-governance of Puerto Rico entero because nobody believes that an independent self-autonomous island is possible without the aid of external sources. The amount of people that were actually voted for independence as opposed to either statehood or continued commonwealth, remember that those are almost 50-50 and 0.5 in the voting party, right? It's like 49%. Commonwealth, 51% statehood and point something for independence. And it had been like that throughout time. And it's just now starting to grow. The mutual aid component and, and organizing bodies like Dayer Salud are so important for people to really see that a self-sustaining Puerto Rico is possible. Just not in Luisa because it was forced to, but because we decide and we have a choice to detether ourselves from the imperialist American body and say, we've got us, we can do this. And it's organizations like that, that show that it is possible and it's important that they grow. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a grand experiment that would be. Like I think about when Miriam said in the first episode, like it's not about being under-resourced, it's about being unresourced. It's just true. That is how the U.S. colonial project has maintained its power, right? Is by controlling, among many strategies, the amount of resources allowed to enter an experiment in statehood, an experiment in crafting autonomy. It goes, okay, if you if you manage to get our, you know, our coups from, you know, taking hold, and you manage to keep us at the at the margins, what we'll do is we'll limit the amount of resources that enable you to even build the programs that you want to build. There's like the value of the labor, but then there's also the ways that that's maintained by limiting the types of experiments that can happen, right? So within an autonomous area, like we're talking about, so much can can grow and there's space for things to grow across decades. Within that control, outside of that autonomy, like the, the options are so limited. And so I think that's part of why both, I would imagine for the whole island, but as someone who's not there, like for us, like what happens when autonomy is defined? And then we have to figure out what we do from there. It seems like a really valuable question. 
and a, and a valuable experiment. You know, it is just so important for us to bring Louise into the lab for so many reasons. And one of the reasons is like, look at this longevity, look at this timeline, look at this past and, and think about starting with a conversation and getting to the point where you really are able to bring this model across the ocean, across the country, you know, to all these different movements at a time when they really needed it in 2020. Louisa was here for us, you know, I mean, for real. And we need to be here for Louisa too. Gotcha. All right, Dane, before we get out of here, what else jumped out to you from the combo? Just some little like fact-based things of this work is mutual aid based and it is about local programs that are about like, you know, organic skill building, but there also has been like large state consequences. And so TS was a part of a, a coalition that in 1989 produced the Domestic Violence Act on the island. And I don't have the date written down, but in the last two years, they have gotten domestic violence declared as a state of emergency, right? So I think even that as like a, a furthered edge than where we are, especially in, in, as the conversation of reproductive justice since we started booking these interviews to where we are now has shifted and changed and intensified so much. Um, it is, I think, just important to know that that structural context is there and like the notion of having to declare a state of emergency because based off my research and in some articles I saw about them, the island based off some statistics, has the highest per capita of murder and killings connected to the domestic violence. And so like in facing this horrific crisis that counterdeveloped this amazing work, I just want to make sure folks like have a, an understanding of that impact to then go to, to you about vision or ideal about impact of this conversation or conversations like this. Because our intention, right, in releasing two versions is not just for, you know, the listeners and audiences of Ergo and One Million Experiments to engage this, but really for folks on the island to be in deeper conversation with each other, but also for the island to be in conversation with the diaspora. The Puerto Rican diaspora is strong, mighty, and wide, and Chicago is one of the flagships of that diaspora. And so what do you hope can be more possible about diasporic power building and liberatory thrust, not just, you know, on this conversation in isolation, but in conversations like this that connect satellite back and forth to the island and to the diaspora. Really and honestly, loving inclusion and awareness of intersectionality. I think so much of the diaspora is at a superficial level of patriotism I think our diaspora is in strong need of intersectionalism with regards to how to one self-identify how we are oppressed as people and to also have a loving awareness of our trans folks within our diaspora, within our community, within women, how we treat women. I think, again, our culture is highly patriarchal and misogynist. And I think that we're not moving fast enough for me as a people to actually do the kind of work that Dayad Salud is doing, where they're bringing in their young men to understand fully like how they are perpetrating harm towards women and trans women and femme bodies. Part of what I want to see for my people, especially here in Chicago in general, is doing more work with our Black brown and indigenous communities, like really understanding and dismantling within our own community what colonialism has done to us 
and understand that the price that we pay for assimilation and being a part of capitalism is to be racist towards other Black people, is to be misogynist and sexist towards women. That's the price you pay to be an American. I want us to remove ourselves from that collectively and really think about how we can go back to the root of our culture, the root of, of our people. And our people are healers. They love each other. They are autonomous. They're independent. They're self-sustaining. We really have to look at that as the goal, right? As the way to get there. I see so many young Puerto Ricans here from Chicago wanting to go back to the island and buy land. We got to do that. We have to commune. We have to learn what grows where and how. Like we have to join the Hibarito movement because like they know what their land needs. They know what's going to prosper. They know what the cosecha needs, right? It's like, I think that there's a pride in taking back our land that's going to come from love and it's going to come from dismantling ideas of what it means to assimilate and ascend and to like have these capitalist dreams. Like let's, let's get rid of all of that. And, and start from love and intersection. Beautiful. All right, Joe, let's skedaddle out of here. Eva, where can folks find the work of One Million Experiments, Interrupting Criminalization, all, all, all the links? Where, where should people go to find out more? Millionexperiments.com. You've heard me say it once. I'll say it again. We're always at Interrupt Crim the catchiest of handles on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> and Instagram. And if y'all follow Ergo, which I'm sure you do, they're always popping us up. So thanks, guys. <laughs> We're at ErgoRadio.com. At <laughs> <laughs> ErgoRadio across all socials. Uh, Melissa, where can folks find you in the ways you want to be found? Boom Boom Dupre on Instagram. Follow me on Facebook for all the personal rants against my abuela and for most of the information that I like to pop out to support other orgs like Ergo, Let Us Breathe Collective, Project Mia, and others and the fabulous work that they're doing. But if you ever want to catch me in and around town or on Grey's Anatomy every now and then, find me on the website, MelissaDupre.com. I was about to say, this is our first uh, Ergo Grey's Anatomy crossover episode, (laughs) but it won't be the last. For those listening who were unsurprisingly blown away by Melissa, uh, in 2016, we had Melissa on Ergo, and you can listen to more of just her amazing work and grounding. And she's done so much since then, but you can get just more of that spirit. So follow, listen, subscribe at Ergo. All right, we got to go. Make sure you subscribe to One Million Experiments wherever you get your pods, subscribe to Ergo, all that good stuff. And we'll be back next month with another experiment in how we create safety in a world without police and prisons. Much love to the people. Peace.